0: the Word of God today. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you, even through the difficulties, the hardships, the challenges, the, the trials of life. Lord, it doesn't mean we're to stop praising you. Uh, we pray that you would uh, teach us as a, a, an expression of our faith to learn to continue to give you praise even in the valleys of life, as well as on the mountaintop experiences. And we pray that um, we as a, a church today would be thankful again and afresh for the, the blessings of your word, your word that is so rich and true, and that which is alive, and that which is powerful. Lord, may your word be at work in our hearts today, and may you guide me as we proclaim it. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know how many of you ever been on a tour. How many of you ever been on a bus tour or some sort of tour? Okay, you have a tour guide. I have having thoughts of the time I was in Israel and we had this tour guide and he would take the time to say to us on, let's say, day three, now yesterday we did such and such and such and such and he would review and then he'd say, and now today we're going to go see this, this, and this. And he'd prepare you for what you were going to see that day. Well, I'm sort of like the tour guide, I feel like, today. Because um, we've just completed a sermon series over a number of weeks, I think about 12 weeks, where we were looking at the whole concept of seeking God. And the reason I got into that is because I really wanted to see the Lord, if we were to seek Him, that He might do a work of restoring us, renewing our hearts, and reviving our hearts. And I don't know if that happened in your life or not, uh, but that was our hope and prayer And uh, I would hope that the Lord is giving us, if that is indeed true, that we are seeking Him, that He would give us greater freedom, He would give us greater uh, forgiveness and have an awareness of that, a fullness of of, of enjoying Him, and also of having greater spiritual fruitfulness. Because it's true, if we seek God, then obviously that's critical for our church health and our church life. This morning, I want to move in a different direction. I want to talk about where we're headed now in the future. And we're going to go in a direction in which, and I was hoping to do this when I told the elders what I was planning to do, is to first spend a number of weeks on seeking God. And then the second half of that series, I'd like to make it called Seeking the Lost. And one of the reasons I did that is because I believe that if we are serious about drawing near to God and we open up our hearts to the Holy Spirit and we say, Lord, I'm seeking you, deal with me, and hopefully maybe over the last several weeks in your hearts and lives, you've gone through a time of repentance, you've gone through a time when you've maybe forgiven people that you need to forgive, uh, you've got, uh, gained a greater sense of humility before God, and of holiness in your desire to live your life before God, and, and uh, adopting perhaps a higher standards of sexual purity, or whatever it is. But along with those responses, it seems to me that when we're seeking God and we begin to have a passion for God and an enjoyment of God, it seems like the logical then thing that's going to happen is that you join God in what God is doing in the world. That you don't just sit back and say, okay, I'm just going to enjoy God and it's going to just be me and Him forever. No, it's the idea that we join God, a God who is now, as we align our lives with Him, We are joining Him in His mission in the world. And what is the mission of our great God? What was Jesus' mission? Luke 19 tells us. He says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So God is on mission to rescue sinners. And He's doing that, having purchased them through the blood of Christ... And He is making them a kingdom of priests for the praise and the glory of His name. That's what God is doing in the world. And so the more, it seems to me, our hearts are revived, and the more burdened, the more concerned, the more compassionate we become for those who are lost, those who don't know Christ, those who are still living in darkness and who are not seeking Him right now. So my approach in doing this particular theme of Seeking the Lost, I'd like to head in this direction. I want us to return to the book of Acts. Now, some of you don't groan. Thank you. I didn't hear any groans. That's good. Uh, We were in Acts for a number of weeks. I had to look it up myself to figure out where did we stop in that book. Uh, I'm not going to ask you where it is. I'm just going to tell you. We ended after chapter 19. And we didn't finish the book. So we're going to look at chapter 20. You might want to make your way there right now. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 1324, but we're looking at Acts 20 because we're just going to pick up the story of what God has been doing in the act through the apostles. It's what uh, Jesus is doing actually through his apostles. And we're looking at chapter 20, and Paul now is on his third missionary journey, and he's just now left Ephesus. There's a big riot there. He almost, uh, again, his life was in danger. He's now on the move, he's trying to go from where he's been, headed back to Jerusalem, and he's going to deliver some money he's been collecting along the way for people who are struggling and suffering, the believers there in Jerusalem because of a a famine. Now chapter 20 is going to give us some amazing insights, I think, as I've read over this chapter, it's so rich, it's so amazing, all the things that are packed in here, some insights into what does it mean to have a legacy of a life That is really been transformed by the gospel to such an extent that the life now has been invested in such a way to seek not only God, which we've been talking about, but to seek the lost, to seek so many diverse people who need Christ. And that's what we're seeing is the gospel legacy of the Apostle Paul, a person whose heart was seeking God and seeking diligently to win the lost to Christ. So I'd like to read... I'm going to start with verse 7. I'm just going to summarize what's verse first verse seven verses. Basically, uh, you've got Paul making his way, again, sort of in a hurry. He's carrying a number of guys with him. They're all traveling together, about seven guys. And again, they're making their way back uh, from the cities of Ephesus and Philippi. And here we go in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them intending to depart the next day. By the way, he's in Troas, and all this is happening. And he prolonged his message until midnight. You think I preached long. <laughs> and there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. Upper room, it's probably the third floor of a private home. A very well-to-do, probably, person, they're using their home. And there was a certain young man named Eutychus, sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board, and thus he had arranged it and intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios. And from next day, we crossed over to Samos, and the next day followed and came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, which, by the way, was up a river, a little bit inland, not really directly on the coast, uh, in order that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life to, be, to have any account as dear to myself, in order that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that you all, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on your guard, be on, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those, all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or clothes, you yourselves know, With these hands I've ministered to my own needs and to the men who are with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, by the way, this is not in any of the Gospels, so therefore the Gospels don't record every single thing that Jesus said. Um, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud. And embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they should see his face no more. And they were reaccompanying him to the ship. In this chapter, I believe I've tried to summarize it down into I think we'll find three elements, three elements of a lasting gospel legacy of a person who is on mission for God what's the first of these we see well we see that there's love and devotion to Christ in response to God's gracious calling you know Luke is the one that wrote this account and Luke in writing this book of Acts I get the sense as you read through that doesn't it sound like there's a, an eyewitness testimony here the way he described the falling out of that window and the, and the torches there and the heat of that upper room and I mean it's just you can just get the sense, this is a, a, a eyewitness account and the emotional goodbyes. You could tell there's just a strong sense that somebody was there watching this. Uh, these things really happen. Well, Luke's account clearly conveys the fact that Paul, the man who at one time was violently opposed to the gospel. It is Paul of all people, who was used of God to make such lasting and life-changing gospel, Impact on so many towns. It seems like that's what he's trying to stress here in this particular chapter Instead of however elevating Paul to some status of being some kind of Superstar, you know as if he's some kind of rock star, you know, this is Paul, you know I think it's interesting that Luke now is going to choose the words that were chosen there He's now trying to summarize what was happening in all this encounter And he includes in the summary, look at verses 18 and 19 of Paul's comments there in Miletus. Paul says, You yourselves know from the very first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord. To me, that's that's such a key phrase. Serving the Lord with all humility. And then he goes on in verse 24, skip down. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to me in every city. How did he get to that point? How did he get to the point where he says, I'm not just going to live a life that's all about me and having a, 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 a sparkling, you know, righteous reputation. That's what he was years ago, you know, Mr. Religious. No, he says, I don't think my life has any account dearest to me in, in this city in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. Do you hear what's really going on at the core level of all that Paul now has been investing in this gospel ministry? All of his exhausting efforts to bring the good news of Jesus to both Jews and Gentiles in all these cities, in what is today Turkey, what is today Greece, the country of Greece. He did all that not to make a name for himself. Why did he do it? Because he had such a love, such a sense of devotion to his Savior so that whatever he was doing with his life, he says, I'm doing this for my Savior, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the backstory of chapter 20 is Jesus' gracious dealings with this guy named Saul, who eventually became Paul. If you remember, it is Saul who despised Jesus Christ. I mean, despised him did whatever he could to to hinder anything happening good as a result of Jesus. And yet Jesus loved him anyway. It is Jesus who halted Paul in his steps, stopping him, making him blind for a period of time, confronting him directly, and saves him sovereignly, graciously, giving him what? A transformed heart so that he's not the same person. He gives him a brand new attitude toward all the people who years ago he would do his best to stay away from, right? Because Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the person who was loved to be separated from anybody who wasn't following all the rules. And so Paul now has changed so that he now looks at people who have a different race, a different ethnicity, different religion that he would avoid these people now what does he do he realizes that Christ has called him to carry the good news of Jesus and the gospel to the various unreached urban centers of his world seems to me an enduring gospel legacy is not about gaining fame It's not about gaining notoriety or one's own glory and compile all these impressive statistics because That's really no longer the account here in Acts. They're not talking about the numbers of people in all these towns. That's not not what's going on here. Paul's enduring gospel legacy is rooted in his love for Christ. He loved Christ. His passion for the gospel was the overflow of his gratitude and his love for the Savior who himself he knows has changed him so dramatically from what he used to be to what he is now and that he is now in a sense laying down his life as christ laid down his life paul says i'm just going to do the same thing i'm just going to give my life to making sure i seek and save the lost i find it fascinating verse 24 to think that paul viewed his life as a marathon race his christian life maybe some of you have heard of the the, the tunnels and towers race they have, you know, every year. They, they run through the tunnel in, in, in Manhattan, into Manhattan and, uh, you know, it's all done again for people connected to 9-11 and it's just all done out of motivation to truly bless and help other people. And there are many people that get involved in these marathons, you know, I would, I'm sorry, but I don't have any motivation to do that at this stage in life to run, to help somebody. Uh, I'm not that much of a help, but it's interesting to see the, the, the analogy of Paul saying, my life, My calling to serve my Savior is like a long-distance marathon and I'm going to finish that course. That's what he says in verse 24. What keeps people running in a long-distance race? Obviously, it's a strong love. I would run as far as I could, but I'd have to walk a long distance. But I'd do it out of love. Perhaps you've heard of the movie chariots of fire how many of you ever heard of that movie chariots of fire okay a lot of you have it's worth seeing if you haven't seen it it's an old old movie now but it's about the true story of a runner named eric little l-i-d-d-e-l-l and he was uh came eventually had the nickname given to him called the flying scotsman and the reason for that is because he was a very fast runner happened to be from scotland scottish heritage But uh, he actually was born of missionary parents in China. And his parents were from Scotland. And so early on in his life, he and his brother had to go back to Scotland for their education. And they were away from their parents for many years. And while there, he realized that God had given him a gift of running. He was just a fast uh, speedster on his feet. And he qualified as a young man to compete on behalf of Great Britain, in the 1924 olympics in paris france and what was interesting about this competition was that on the day that he was scheduled to run his best meet his best race was the 100 meter race and guess when they scheduled that race it happened on a sunday the lord's day and little said i would love to run i'd love to represent my country but i'm not going to run that race I'm not going to offend my Savior. I have convictions, and I'm not going to compete on the Lord's Day. And the movie depicts all that and and talked about somebody who looked at him as if he's an idiot, a fool. And interestingly enough, he was given an opportunity to run the 400 meters race, which was not his best race. And as a result, uh, interestingly enough, he wins that race. He wins the Olympic gold. And by the way, back then they didn't have the closing ceremonies. They would send you, they'd engrave the, the gold medal and they'd mail it to you. <laughs> so it was a little anticlimactic. But boy, when he went back to Scotland, he was a hero. He was just super famous, instant, um, uh, just an athlete, one of the greatest athletes of his day among his peers. But interesting story there. In the film, it says, and this is the words that are sort of, I think, given too little. I don't know that these really are his words. But he would say in the film, I believe God made me for a purpose. He made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure. You realize that even running could be for the glory of God. And that's what he sought to do. He would refuse to run on the day he felt like was not honoring God, but then he ran on the day he felt like it was appropriate, and he sought to do everything for the glory of God. So much so that he laid aside all the fame, all the notoriety as in a famous Olympic champion. He devoted his adult life, To being a missionary back in china interestingly enough what little did say and this is a direct quote he said god made me for china in other words he said god gave me a marathon run to race and i'm going to devote my life to serving him faithfully there and to pursue making known the greatness of the gospel for the great for the glory of god's great fame among the people of china and that's exactly what he did Matter of fact, he married, had a couple of kids. But when things got dangerous, he sent his wife and the two kids that she was expecting at the time back to Canada right before the Japanese invaded and they were held into an internment camp. And you don't hear about this in the movie. But at the end of his life, he is taking initiative to minister to people who once you become in one of these camps, you realize you might be dying soon, people begin to act out of control. They don't care about anything. No restraints. No restraints. In any way possible. People who are the most calm people become the most wild and crazy and lawless people. And he was doing what he could to address bringing order and bringing activities for people to give them a sense of hope. And he was serving and laying down his life for other people until he died of a brain tumor in 1945. Now, my point in telling this story is what? My friend, if you our follower Jesus Christ, the scriptures say, we are called to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And we're to keep our eyes on Jesus. That is, keep your eyes on the one who called you into the race. Keep your eyes on the one who saved you. Keep your eyes on the one who laid down his life for you. And we are called to a marathon of ministry. And this is a tough part of the race for our church. It's not an easy time. We don't have as many resources, don't have as many people. We have opportunity and the culture around us has completely become more and more secularized. But this is the opportunity that God says, out of a love for Christ, we keep pursuing, serving Christ no matter what. Until we get to the end. And God calls us home. One of that was very clear in Paul's life, a love for Christ. Oh, just amazing. Secondly, there's another thing here that's so obvious. It is a love for people. A love for people that resulted in giving ourselves, giving oneself to sincere evangelism and discipleship. It seems to me that you can't really separate out a love for Christ, and it seems to me very similarly inclined if you really have a love for christ you're going to have a love for people right and it's like two sides of the same coin if you really have a strong passionate love for christ you're going to have then a, a strong love and passion for other people to know him and to serve the people of god and there and, and one of the obvious indicators that paul loved those he was ministering to did you notice this in verse 19 and verse 31 and verse 37 is the mentioning a number of times of the word tears tears they're crying these are men crying and you'll notice that he admonished them with tears they embraced him at the end there with tears what are these tears saying to us clearly there's deep bonds of affection there's this sense of hearts that are love and cherish the people that paul ministered to you can just tell it that's what's been going on even though Paul's in a hurry, he made time to say goodbye. He made time to, to connect with the people he deeply cared about. And they deeply cared about him. Years ago, uh, when I was in college, uh, I began to start dating my wife Joyce about our junior year. Uh, we had been friends, and uh, during that time of our junior and early senior year, um, we were on a break, and we had gone to visit I had gone up to visit her parents house and so uh, we've had a, a couple of days there and now we're getting ready to drive back to college I was in maryland going back to south carolina and so we're getting ready to leave we packed up the car and we sort of gathered outside her parents are there and me and joyce and <clears throat> and we and her dad was so cool he'd always pray for us which was nice and then next thing i know here come tears i mean it, her, her mom is crying her dad is crying i'm like Did somebody die here? I mean, why are we crying? I mean, every time I'd say goodbye to my parents, it was always hugs, love you, and smiles on their face. You know, can't wait to see you again. Call us when you get there, you know, whatever. And here in this family, I'm I'm thinking, wow. And then I realized, her folks are just the most tender-hearted, loving people you ever would know. Not to say that mine weren't. It's just they were able to express it in such a wonderful way. And so here's Paul. Genuinely caring for all these lost people. And we catch the glimpse of the evidence of this love for all these unsaved people in this text. Because notice what his heart of compassion and love was doing. Verse 19, he talks about, I'm going to be inconvenienced because I'm going out of my way. I'm not going to hang out in my homeland of Tarsus. Or I'm not going to hang out in the cities that I would like to probably hang out. He's going out of his way to travel to all these cities along the coast and the ones inland. He's willing to step out of his comfort zone. He's no longer just with the people who are like him. But he's crossing over boundaries of culture, crossing over boundaries of race and ethnicity, people who are not like him. What a a radical change that is for him. Willing to endure painful trials, he says, and, and, and endured some time-consuming hassles, really. I mean, because he was arrested numbers of times. He was in prison, held. He had his plans, but those plans didn't go the way he is intending often. But he devoted how many years, verse 31, to the people in Ephesus? Three years of his life he labored among them and served them and he never ever took advantage of them as people he really cared about he says listen don't you remember how I ministered to you I did whatever I could to show you that my motive here is not about getting from you I'm here to make sure to give to you and that's why I'm collecting all this money the reason I have all this money with me he says is to help people who are in need because Jesus said it's better to give than to receive Now, as I've thought about Paul's ministry, I've thought about, you know, people are obviously more likely to listen to any kind of our gospel witness if they know we truly, truly, genuinely love them and care about them. I came across a quote by Rosaria Butterfield who is a former professor at Syracuse University and a former a woman who was living a lesbian lifestyle, uh, who was witnessed to by a local pastor and his wife, who invited her over for dinner one night and showed her great, great kindness, engaged in conversation. And anyway, she wrote this. She's re- recently come out with a book. She's become saved now, and she's written a book on hospitality. This is one of her comments. It's in your notes. God is calling us to so greatly love others that we. Don't desire for them anything that might separate them from God. I wonder if the lost people around me, the lost people around you, do they see any evidence that you deeply care about them? Do you know their names? Do you know what they're facing, what their struggles are? You unbelievers in your neighborhood, here in the village of Lake Grove and Center Reach and Nesconset and Stony Brook, do they know and have they ever seen the evidence that what Paul said in First in Thessalonians 2, verse 8, is there any evidence of any kind of fond affection for these people or do we do our best to sort of avoid them? Because we don't want to be bothered they got all kinds of issues. Their their lives are messy. They do things and say things that I don't particularly want to be around. I wonder, have they become dear enough to us, Paul says, that we would dare share our time, our involvement, that we would share our very selves with them, that we might gain the privilege of imparting to them at some point the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul had been doing in all these different cities. What that means is that's going to mean it's going to be inconvenient for us. It means that for many of us, we're going to have to get out of our comfort zone. We're going to have to get involved in doing things that we're just not used to doing. And it's not something that we're really very uh, adept at. It means we're going to have to endure some difficulties. Some hardships, some hassles, some problematic people. And I tell you, God has been working in my heart. I went to a conference yesterday with about 10 other people from our church, thank God, and very rich, very helpful conference here about revitalization. And one of the things the Lord has just, just zeroed in and pressed on me is I need to repent of my lack of love for people who are lost in this community and, le- and, the, and what I haven't been willing to do to be more involved to reach them. See, I realize the problem is not with my unsaved neighbors. What's with you people? Why don't you come and join us at church? That's not the right mindset. You see, the problem is not with my unsaved neighbors, many of whom do smoke pot. And uh, many of whom I've heard in screaming matches with each other with all sorts of colorful language. Uh, Many of whom are play loud music. At times, I wish they wouldn't. And yet, Isn't it true that it's my lack of zeal in witnessing is rooted ultimately to a lack of love for Christ and a lack of love for my neighbors? That I'm unwilling to get involved in their lives. So, it seems to me that God has called us to do ministry where we are. Where we are. The neighbors you have are are there because of God's sovereign providence this church is located where it is based on what God where God wants us to minister to the people of this community and Christ died for people like Saul who was self-righteous who was separated and who had no interest in Jesus Christ and God changed his heart and gave him not only a love for Christ but a love for people that really changed the direction of his pursuits and his devotion of his energies and himself to make a difference in other people's lives. May God do that in us. May him do it in us, not because we feel guilty, but because we are filled with love, a love that God gives us and spills over in our hearts. There's one more thing I would like to point out here in this rich text in another area in which the gospel legacy of gospel impact is we see a loyalty to the truth of god's gospel a loyalty to the truth of god's gospel here this element of gospel legacy that honors christ is when we're being a faithful steward of the truth just like in a marathon race when you are runner uh, actually a relay race you you you're carrying a baton and you carry that around your lap or two and then you hand it off to someone else that's sort of what we're doing with the truth of the gospel and when Paul has the gospel given to him he refused to go around taking opinion polls about what people liked or didn't like about the gospel and then modify the gospel such a way that it would sort of fit in with the preferences of the majority of people of his day He he refused to cave into the pressure to make the gospel popular or more acceptable he insisted on against the backdrop now of of all this pagan polytheistic paganism you've got all kinds of gods being worshipped in these Roman cities right he refuses to cave into that pressure he insists on the exclusivity of the gospel that is that Jesus Christ is the only way to the only true And living God he never bent away from that at all and Paul also did not succumb to the intimidating pressure of these mobs remember he kept running into these mobs book of Acts in which again the many of the Jews of his day demanded that he conform to their popular Jewish messianic expectations and every time he talked about the, the crucifixion boy they just get highly offended talk about the resurrection highly offended But what did he do? Verse 21. Paul called unbelievers to respond to the biblical gospel. And here it is. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have one or the other. It's both and. We must turn away from sin and we must turn toward Christ and trust and rely and and completely uh, transfer our trust to Him. And Paul's just refused to compromise the truth. My friends, we need to do the same. There's no need to re- refashion the gospel. The gospel is the gospel, but we, how we share it obviously can change. But not the gospel. The truth is the truth. Now, do you think that was easy for Paul to do, to resist all that pressure? Uh, you say, well, this guy's a professional. Come on. He was an apostle. But look at what he says here. There's indications in verse 20 and verse 27 that there was pressure, he felt, to make the gospel more palatable for popular preferences among pagans and religious people. He says in verse 20 and 21, he he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Indicating that he covered some probably unpopular topics there. He dealt with the issue of repentance and dealing with sin in your life and confronting you with the fact that you need to come to terms with being accountable to a holy God. You see, Paul insisted on proclaiming the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the crucifixion of the Messiah on the cross, even though it it brought about huge mob violence. He'd still do it. But by being a faithful witness, proclaiming the true gospel, Paul made known the power of God to both lost Jews and lost Gentiles. And what we see in Acts 20 is here they all are there gathering, uh, expressing their appreciation and seeing the fruit of all that gospel proclamation. We are obviously facing increased pressure in our day from an ever-widening segment of our population that is intolerant of anything that declares you have absolute truth any kind of absolute truth claim regarding the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as being the only way to God let me tell you something you're gonna offend a lot of people with that but that is the truth that is the truth and therefore it's increasingly unpopular it's offensive to insist as David Platt does here in your notes David Platt, uh, who is uh, so effective among the Southern Baptists missions, he says, God is the exclusive creator, owner, and judge of every person on this planet. That's an offensive message to people. They don't want to deal with that. But that's the truth. So our mission is not to reinvent the Gospels, not to, to try to somehow refashion it, make it something that's modern and, and somehow more tolerable no our our mission is what faithfully pass it on to the next generation keep running the marathon of ministry race and say okay here it is here's the gospel i'm passing it on to you and i just want to point out one more thing about paul and his gospel legacy it has to do with his talk with those elders there in miletus his loyalty to the truth motivated him to take measures to protect young, immature, undiscerning believers from the dangers of false teaching and false teachers. You see, Paul urged those who were elders to never slack off when it came to spiritual discernment. You see, as a good shepherd, never forgets the sheep are vulnerable they are easily misled and sheep need shepherds who will be vigilant to protect them from dangerous wolves whether those wolves are to be found outside the flock or outside the church or whether those wolves can be disguised as sheep and be involved in their own dangerous ministry within the church Because God's truth, let's be very clear, God's truth is always under attack. Always. And one of the best ways we can create a gospel legacy is to prepare our generation and the next generation for spiritual battle by insisting on biblical discernment. We need to know the truth. And the false gospels love to place emphasis on people earning their way to God. Oh, that's the popular message among pretty much any religious movement other than the true gospel. Is to improve yourself or to take steps to do the things that need to do so that you may become more welcoming or more acceptable to God and work your way up to God is what human religion does. Christianity is different, as you say here, as we read here, Tim Keller. The gospel is that we are saved through what Christ does and not by what we do or who we are that is so incredibly essentially important and so the false false gospel will help no one and that's why we must stand against it it actually is not helping it's actually destroying people instead of providing sinners a way of salvation a false gospel leaves them hopelessly damned in their sin and feeling pretty smug about it So here's the bottom line. What will be your gospel legacy? What will be my gospel legacy? Are we going to quit the marathon of ministry? Sit on the sidelines, watch everybody else do it? Wait for all the professionals to come in and do it for you? What will be the gospel legacy of our church that has been now established for over 200 years? It's still being written, my friend. The choices that we make in the near weeks ahead, in the months ahead, and even if God prevails into the years ahead are going to be critical. Absolutely critical. Let's be found faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank You for a text of Scripture that just shows us just a glimpse of what wondrous impact Your grace and Your powerful Spirit can do in a person's life who's yielded to Christ and who's been transformed by the Gospel. Lord, we just look at those things and we marvel at what You've done uh, that years ago through the Apostle Paul. And we are benefactors of that, Lord. His spiritual legacy is still gospel legacy is still affecting us we pray that you would help us father to have our own spiritual legacy that we would be people who are on mission with you reaching and touching lives all around us lord not waiting for people to come to us but being those who seek to engage and to bring good news to those around us to love them lord as you love them and to hold forth the truth in a faithful and pleasing way Lord, would you as a help us as a church as we seek to mobilize our church and to seek to focus our attentions on our needy people all around us. We pray that you might do a mighty work among us. That we might seek the lost along with you. We pray in your name. Amen.